Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. So what is astonishing you? What's astonishing me? Well, we have an event coming up at the church in a couple of weeks, and it's the kind of thing that I love to do. And have is it never Easter? <laughs> no, no, it's not Easter, even though I love Easter. Um, it's the kind of thing that um, I've, I've struggled with getting other congregations to embrace. Uh, first Sunday, uh, Sunday, first Saturday in April, we're holding what we're calling a prayer summit. It's mm. for the whole congregation, and we're gathering in our fellowship center from 9 a.m. to noon. And the point is simply to pray for the ministry of the church. Nice. Because we struggle, like other congregations, with discerning between good ideas and God ideas. Mm -hmm. And often we will gravitate toward the good ideas, especially if the person speaking is uh, someone who's loved, someone who, who we see as an authority. And, we, and, and usually those are not, they're not bad ideas. Right. But we just kind of run with them and say, oh, so-and-so has an idea. Let's just go with it. But we want to press pause and ask for God's plan, God's will, God's idea. And one of the things I've been saying to the congregation over and over again for the past week as we've been anticipating this event is that, hey, remember, the idea of hearing from God is not the realm of the super spiritual. Mm -hmm. right? There's, I love that place in Isaiah where Isaiah, the prophet, uh, pokes fun at those who worship idols of clay and stone and wood and gold and silver, they have ears but can't hear, eyes but can't see, mouths but can't speak. Mm -hmm. Well, we worship the living God who speaks. And because God's spirit speaks to our spirit, we can hear from God. And I'm going to be preaching on this whole idea of hearing from God, um, hearing God's voice next Sunday. And one of the things I, I want to emphasize is that we all don't hear in the same way. There are some people who hear words and sentences, God said this, and this is mm -hmm. how God said it. I don't hear that way. I love people who hear that way, but I don't. And I, I, I used to feel that my way of hearing was less than, but it's not. I, I, I get definite impressions. I tell people I have what's called an internal traffic light that God mm -hmm. has given me, and there's a you know red, yellow, green, and it's some things are very clear, and sometimes God will give me a direction, and I'll I'll just know something is right, but I won't be able to tell you why I know. I just know that God is saying this is the way. So we're gonna gather, and um, we've divided the ministry into different categories, like you know worship and outreach and um, fellowship, those kinds of things. And we're, we're going to pray for each of those. We're going to have a facilitator for each one, and there are going to be um, index cards at the table. And when someone feels like they've heard from God, you write it on the index card, and you put it in the basket. And we're going to do that for about three hours, and then at the end, uh, elders are going to collect those index cards, and then we're going to go through them. And we acknowledge that some of those cards will be opinions, mm -hmm. right? Um, I, uh, mm -hmm. People ideas. And we'll separate those. And, and we may very well need to come back to some of those. We'll, we'll set those aside. We won't throw them away. But then there will be those God ideas. 
And then as, as a board, as a group of elders, we're going to pray about those and seek God about the next step, what we should do to be faithful in leaning into what God has spoken. And we've done something like this once before. Just before the pandemic, we called the church to prayer, the elders and I, and we didn't do it together. We, we told the congregation the worship center, the sanctuary, would be open for two days, all day. And at any time, you have time to go pick up a little prayer liturgy, your index card, pray, whether alone or with a small group. And um, we collected the index cards. And shortly after that, that's when the pandemic hit. And we had those cards and we could discern some things that we were to do during the pandemic, during mm-hmm. quarantine, because we'd had that time of prayer. So I'm really looking forward uh, to this event. But what's astonishing me about this whole thing is that, um, you know, like I said, I've been in congregations where I felt like I was really forcing them or, you know, just really kind of begging and pleading, you know, we need to do this. Over the past month, it's been the elders Mm. saying to me, Pastor, we need to do this. Members of the congregation are saying, we need to gather to pray. And that has blessed my soul, even though it's my fault it's been held up because I'm I'm planning this event with a couple of the elders, and I've just been so busy. Um, that's embarrassing to say, too busy to plan a prayer event. Um, but I am just astonished. Limits are not sins. L- limits are not sins, yes. Um, but I, I'm astonished that um, our um, elders and uh, members of our church family are at a place where they are saying to me, Pastor, let's pray. We, we are hungry and thirsty to pray together. Yeah, I, I think that is such hopeful news um, and so deeply glorifies God that when a church remembers that any anything that we do that matters is of God. And so to seek God first is not a delay. It is not you know it it it's it's not a distraction it is the reason that we are gathered and you know jesus showed up in very concrete material ways in people's lives to um to magnify the lord and glorify god and bear witness to the values of the kingdom and i think we as a church are called to show up in very concrete ways in people's lives to to be the body of christ like there's that saying that to a hungry man, the gospel is bread. And so I really, I mean, I probably err way too hard on the side of concrete ministry. And I think, you know, as you grow older and hopefully wiser and more more mature, you start to see that frantically, busily doing ministry is not glorifying the Lord. And that the reality is it is, it glorifies God when you do less, more fully in God's spirit than when you just are frazzled and because you're not inviting people into the rest of knowing Jesus and into the power that comes from seeing the thing that you do, the loaves and the fishes that you gather, which are nothing but in the context of the glory of God become beyond any, any manifestation. And when your ministry is clearly no longer a product of your effort and energy and busyness, but is a fruit 
of the Holy Spirit. So it's not having less of a desire to see people's lives concretely transformed. It's not that. It's knowing that your desire for people to come alive in Christ is so great that it no longer matters to you that it looks like you have a hand in it. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I think that's really beautiful. And, and the other thing that I think is just so worth noting in what you said when you talk about the differences in ways that people hear from God, and that's so important for everybody to recognize that my way is unique in the, in the way that the Lord created me and the relationship that God has given me and that is holy and other people's ways are not the same and that is as it should be. And also that all of the ways are equally vulnerable to sin and error, yes. right? Because I think sometimes we don't seek the Lord because we think like, well, I'll just get it wrong. <laughs> so I'll listen to things that are more clear to me. Like if I listen to a uh, a leader, I can just know, like they said this and they didn't say that. But if I try to seek the Lord, I'm so afraid I'll get it wrong that we just don't even try. And I think the reality is we will get it wrong. And that's why we are called into a community and into a relationship of interdependent mutuality where we have the kind of life-giving humility where somebody would come to us and say, I think you might have that wrong. And we would receive that with gratefulness um, because we, again, care more about what God is doing than the kind of credit or byline we get in doing it. So I just think to say, if you're the kind of person who thinks, well, people who hear the Lord in words and sentences, they're probably getting it wrong a lot, but because I just get impressions, I'm probably getting it right more often. Like that is just a an illusion slash delusion. And the reality is people who your internal traffic signal is wrong as frequently yeah. as people's audible voices in their heads are wrong. And that's why we need to bring everything to a community of mature people that we trust for, for confirmation. And it's really wonderful when, you know, I'm with someone who hears in words and sentences and I say, you know, I, I had this, this impression. I think I feel, I, I sense the Lord, moving in the direction of, and then they affirm, they mm -hmm. yes, I'm hearing X, Y, Z. Oh, it's really great when our different ways of hearing can support, match When there's one confirmation, yes. mm -hmm. right. And I, I mean, we were just talking about that this morning that I came to meet you and I was getting off the phone with my friend Charday who had called to say, I'm, she is leading prayers of the people in worship this Sunday. And she had called to say, I was planning to go in one direction, but I heard from the Lord and the Lord said, very specifically, I mean, she hears God in words, uh, you know, to do do this. And and then it has to start like that. And she was just saying, you know, what do you what what do you think about that? And I'm like, well, you know, it that such confirmation in conversations that I've had with members of the church and things that I'm reading in other areas and in my own internal sense, which for me, I I rarely not never, but rarely hear words in my head or in my spirit, but it, it is often just an awareness of how the Lord is speaking to me through encounters and conversations and whatever. And, you know, what is great is to have that confirmation of like, well, yes. And the way she in humility submitted it to you, right? Here, I've been praying, the Holy Spirit has said, what do you think? Right. Let's have a conversation about this. And it's important for me to say, and I don't know if she would say this, but I would say this, um, that it's not, she's, 
it's a it's a mutual submission, and mm-hmm. it's not because I serve as the pastor of the church. It's because we are sisters and friends in Christ who honor and see the way that the Lord is moving in one another's lives. And so it's not like, well, you have this role or you have hierarchical authority as the world twists that. No, it's like I see that. I see the value of your gifts. And and vice, you know, and yes. so, I mean, to me, like, even if I, I mean, that was so easy for me because it was just so in line with what I had been sensing. But even if I hadn't, because I have such deep respect for her, you know, I would then start inquiring of the Lord, you know, so anyway, I just think that's really beautiful. But that, but to just dispel that myth that God is not still speaking, which a lot of people, particularly a lot of mainline people really um, are, are functioning as if that's true, or that God is only speaking through institutions, or that God is only speaking through authorities, or the academy. And, And I'm not saying that God isn't speaking in those ways. I'm just saying God is also still speaking directly to us. And um, and that myth that we all hear God in the same way. So if you don't hear God like your neighbor hears God, then you don't hear God. That's not, none of those things are true. And this is about us. It's about the community. It's about this particular part of the body of Christ, this family. Mm-hmm. The biblical image that we have been using as we've talked about this over the past few weeks is that, and, and as a congregation, we can really identify with this. It's Israel in the desert mm-hmm. after leaving Egypt. Um, as they cross the desert, they have a pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by the night. The desert of sin, well, which I just can't. <laughs> I can't. Yes. So but we, can, we can identify with that sense of being in a desert season and needing, like really needing the guidance of God while you're in the desert. And just how vulnerable and weak and uncertain that is, right? And just how much we crave even a bad news God that's clear, <laughs> we just crave clarity that can be our idol. And just to say like, no, when you are really faithfully following the Lord and really in a season of growth and transformation, you're going to feel out at sea because you are, um, because out of the chaos, God is leading you to something new. So, I mean, if your life as it is right now and your faith community or, you know, life community is already you know overflowing with the abundance of god then okay like you are in a special category and i I hope lots of people are but if you know that you're in a season where like this is not this is not it like this isn't right then you should expect i think i think you should expect new life and growth to come not by following clarity (laughs) but by being open to the mystery of coming alive in a new way in Christ. Um, so, yeah. anyway. In the desert, what are we going to eat? What right. are we going to drink? There, there's still it looks like nothing. sources of anxiety. And a cloud. Yeah. Like a cloud is there, <laughs> but it's also not there. Right? Yeah, I mean, right. it's, yeah. you know, yeah. anyway. So, it's a great metaphor. So, so what's astonishing you? Well, I am still um, unpacking and processing and sitting with um, just th- this recent, experience I have had of um, a, a colleague who I respect coming to me. I mean, what I alluded to on the last podcast of coming to me and um, just being really faithful in sharing with me the ways that my actions had caused harm to her in the context of um, 
just grace and love and I mean, to come to someone and say, hey, you did this and it matters, I think, you know, at its basis level, that's a, I mean, it's a gift and it's also re- respect, it's right? Ve- but also very risky. And it's very risky. I mean, to, so the, the, and so anyway, I, I talked a lot about like sort of the, the spirituality about that. And I didn't, I didn't want to talk about the specifics of it last week because it was still really new, um, you know, I'd had less than 24 hours to be processing it all. And so I just didn't want to rush into saying something that would um, increase the damage. Um, but I but I knew even then that I had misstated some things on this podcast. And so I wanted to correct my assumptions and the same, you know, in as in the same platform Um and, you know, and I always think of this as being like a very small group of people who are listening. And so I'm always really mindful. Like I have people's, I have people's faces in my head as I say, as I talk to you on this podcast, because I'm just mindful of like, this person might be listening and what, what do I just want to, because not everything that's true is appropriate for every conversation. Right. And so anyway, I just really wanted to make sure that I didn't inadvertently rush in and increase the damage. But I also just people listen to this podcast. And so I want to correct what I said that was wrong. And so when we were talking several weeks ago about the anti-racism training of the Presbytery of Charlotte um, that we attended um, and and we were sort of unpacking our experience there. And I, um, in retrospect, um, now see that, A, I just was really mistaken about a lot of things. I, I spoke from a place of assumption. And of course, the thing about assumptions is like you don't know their assumptions while you're making them, right? Like you say them just assuming that they're true. And then if someone is faithful to come back to you afterwards and say like, no, those are not true things. And, and you know, what, what is really humbling about that and painful to me is I could have expressed all of those statements as wondering, like I could have said, I wonder if, and I, and I didn't, I said, why didn't they X? And so a, I just want to publicly say that I was wrong about some things. I made an assumption that this training, um, well, this training was based off of the material created by um, a, a, a really um, wise and well-respected anti-racism trainer, um, Dr. Lucretia Carter-Berry, who wrote, has written many resources, but this is Be the be the bridge, right, is the name. And and I made an assumption that this group of folks who the who planned this training for our presbytery had taken her resource and customized it without consulting her. So that was a huge assumption and it was 100% wrong. Um, they did consult her, they did reach out to her, they did contract with her, she did um, specifically look at the context in which this was going to be done and say, you know, give her permission for it to be used in that way and, and you know, said, this is an appropriate way to use my resource. So that was my assumption and it was wrong and, and I really um, regret that and I'll get to some of the implications about that afterwards. You know, the other thing I said is, you know, I expressed my belief that it would have been preferable to have an outside trainer come in um, and I just made an assumption that they didn't even consider that choice and 
that was, again, an assumption, you know, when I was speaking with my colleague who said, actually, we, we did have a robust discussion about what is the, what are the advantages and disadvantages of having internal folks lead this training and external folks lead this training. And we decided, and I, I really listening to it, I'm like, yeah, this makes sense to me that it would be better for the long-term growth and healing and health of our organization if the training was done internally, if the folks who are facilitating these groups and leading this training are the folks that then you continue to run into as a presbytery at presbytery meetings and in worship services and on around committee tables. And I'm like, well, you know, that does make sense. And in the past, I have been frustrated that, you know, people go to a commit, you know, go to a conference and listen to a lecture and then pat themselves on the back like they're done and move on. And I'm like, that, that's true. I really respect that. So assumption that I made, um, which was A, wrong, and B, um, just not respectful of my colleagues and the intentionality of the work that they were doing. Um, and then the third assumption that I made, which is, is really just the most painful for me to consider just all the implications of it, um, but like flat out assumed that some of the ways the facilitators were leading the groups and processing the information we were receiving, that some of those choices were made um, to prioritize the comfort of white people in that space. And that was an assumption I made and it was wrong. Um, and that was what my colleague said to me. It was like, you know, you assume that this was about white people and you are wrong. And like, can you pay attention to why you would make the assumption that we were operating, prioritizing the needs of white people over the people of the needs of people of color. And that was not what we were doing. And, you know, you didn't have privy to information, but you also made an assumption. And so like the deep, like the really deep and painful irony of that, um, which is just not, which is, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of surprised at how surprised I am because it's not something that I didn't theoretically know, which is just that, you know, all of those assumptions are a function of the ways that I, as a human raised in this country and in this culture, still operate under the influence of white supremacy, even as I am trying really intentionally to be part of the Lord's work in dismantling that, right? So like, I made assumptions that I knew what was going on at tables that I wasn't sitting at. I made assumptions that they, the people sitting at those tables, should have done it a different way because that's how it appeared to be superior, you know, better in my eyes. And I made an assumption about whose needs were being centered, um, you know, again, just based on, based on my assumption that I knew what was going on when I didn't. And so I think like, I just, um, I'm, you know, what do I, like, what, what's my takeaway from that? Like, A, I, I think that's the real, I mean, it's not the first, unfortunately, and it won't be the last. And this isn't to dismiss it as inconsequential. It's not inconsequential. It's really consequential that, you know, one of the things I want to do is to be, you know, yeast, is to be a mustard seed. And, and one of the things that I know is real in general and specifically about the institutions that I'm a part of is that they are all founded by people who were under the influence of white supremacy, as I am. And that's not the whole truth about who they were, but it's not not the truth about who they were. And so the good things that God was doing in and through them were also marked and marred and warped by the powers and principalities that are, you know, the real enemy. And so one of the things that I know is true about the Presbytery of Charlotte is that there are people who really constantly 
people of color, obviously, I know this, who, who constantly have to navigate, like, how can I show up in this space and be my authentic self? And how is, you know, the, the brokenness and prejudice and sin of people around me going to wound me? And how much risk do I want to take? And I know that that's true, especially for black women. And, you know, there were black women who I respect in leadership in that space who, again, via my assumptions, I my intention was to respect and honor them, but my impact was not. And I, you know, was one of the forces that was making it harder for black women that I respect to flourish in real leadership in that space. And so, you know, I hate that and I can't deny that. And all I can do is, is grieve it and repent of it and, and sit with it, which is what I've been trying to do. Like not to make it a big, like, woe is me moment, but just to really sit with that and go, okay, Lord, well, what, I can't undo the past. So what can I learn from this moving forward so that I can be a more faithful and life-giving colleague? And, you know, I have some, A, just some real, I think, ways that I need to check myself about, you know, what conversations do I really need to center my voice and my opinion? And looking back, I think that I just, you know, there's, there's a difference between you and me and there's a, uh, and that there's a difference between whose opinions and experiences need to be elevated and who needs to take a turn in the listening chair, which is obviously not a chair I sit in very much. And I think it just would have been wiser for me to have maybe had a sense of like, do I, do I need to rush into this space and to just have listened to you and been able to validate your experiences and to recognize that the kind of pain and discomfort that you experienced in that space it's not it has a different weight than than my takeaways from that space and I could have just you know I could have just said this isn't my my place to speak into right now and so I you know I wish I can I wish I had um, but those wishes aren't you know, whatever. And I, and I just want to be clear, like in no way do I feel like anyone is like canceling me or censoring me. You know, this isn't somebody, this isn't me feeling like, oh, I can't, I can't, I can say whatever I want to say, particularly in this content, in the context of this podcast, I am saying a friend or, or someone I very much would like to be a friend came to me very much in line with the gospel way of if a brother has wounded you or sinned against you, you know, go directly to them and lay their offense before them. And, and, you know, so a a colleague who I very much respect came to me directly and said, here's the impact of your words. And they harmed me. And that was a ton of emotional labor. It was a ton of risk and vulnerability before me. It was a, a grace. And so I'm really, I'm really honoring that, and grateful for it and makes me realize that I wasn't walking out the values that I want to hold in life. And so I'm saying, like, moving forward, I hope that one of the good things that can come out of that thing that can't be undone is that I will be wiser and more humble in how I participate in these discussions. Um, And there's some other you know, steps that I'll take. And the other thing that I 
think is important in the context of this podcast, where we're talking about like, what does it mean to be part of a healthy and holy multi-ethnic community? I, I think it's important for me as a white person to say like, hey, I am a person who is still under the influence of white supremacy. And I don't, it's not new news to me that I'm center and it's not new news to me that I'm weak. And I want to model for people that when someone comes, even when they say to you something that's really hard to hear and something that you really hate, that is a fact that you would just have a posture of, I need to have a posture of curiosity and humility and not be so busy like deflecting and defending myself that I rub salt in the wounds, right? And so I just want to model that in a very clear way that to be a white person trying to be led by the spirit in the work of flourishing, you know, multi-ethnic communities that are healthy and holy means sometimes you got to be willing to sit in the seat of saying like, I messed up and I require forgiveness that I don't deserve, not just from God, but from my brothers and sisters. And I'm not always a leader and I need to be, um, understand the honor of being a follower and, you know, the least I can do is to model that for, for other people. And just to say like, you know, the whole thing, the whole tagline of this conference was we're, we're setting it up in this way because we don't want people participating in the woke Olympics. And I can look back now and go like, wow, that was, I mean, my ego just walked right into that trap. And I, I do, I like the woke Olympics. I'm good at them. And, um, I, you know, part of my desire is just so clearly to say like, I'm not that I'm not one of those kinds of people. I'm not, you know, just to, instead of showing up in a posture of humility to learn, I just came in a posture of needing to perform and that's just really unhealthy. And I I think, you know, the least I can do is be transparent about that and try to model for other white people that like, this is just a weakness that we have that unfortunately causes great harm to our brothers and sisters and that sucks and it's true and we just have to have the maturity and the humility to accept that about ourselves and to to seek the grace that we need and don't deserve in our community and this is the last thing I'm going to say like this to me is the brilliance of um, the gospel in sort of the work of somebody like Ibram X. Kendi of saying like anti-racism means that you're against racism wherever you find it, even when you find it in yourself. So like I can say like, I really hate that I did that and it was wrong and I am against it. And, and, and I want to learn from it and figure out how I can avoid perpetuating the same harm over and over again. (laughs) Yolando is looking out the window. (laughs) Well, here's what I challenge. I, I, I challenge the idea that you can hold an anti-racism conference that equally meets the needs of white people and black people. I think even if it's not your intent, you end up centering the needs of one more than the other. And my experience was that the needs of white people were centered overwhelmingly in that time and um, yeah I, I I struggle with my presence in that space why why I was even there and I think the reality is that like put aside what what the ontological truth in that statement is 
because I, for one, can't know it. I mean, that's certainly your experience, and so I validate that. But but even if that's like ontologically like down from Mount Sinai true, it doesn't mean that the way that I showed up in that conversation was sure, okay. And so sure. I just think I like, can, I can we got to separate with that. those yes, two things. Absolutely. That, like, I absolutely. just And I think, like as we were talking earlier, like it's the illusion of being right about something mm-hmm. that can really blind you to the ways that you're showing up and doing great harm. And so I think for me, yeah. my illusion of whatever, like my myriad of illusions blinded me to the way that I was undercutting and uh, the the leadership of people that I really value and that I was reinforcing the thing that I was really trying to, you know, and that just is a human thing. That's Paul saying, like, I hate that I do the thing I don't want to do and I don't do the thing that I do want to do. And like when I was in seminary, I was taught like, that's a rhetorical advice. He didn't device. He didn't mean it. I'm like, well, I mean, that is my reality is that, you know, and I think it's a human thing is that there's just times when you're like, man, like, I mean, I'm not being melodramatic, but like, there's just times when if you really know yourself, you're like, man, I suck. Like, I really mm-hmm. want to be about these values. And yet, and I often, you know, put a, put a mask on and I, you know, I can make fool people or try to fool people into thinking. And also I'm operating out of different values. And like, that is just a part of the double-mindedness and brokenness of being human and that doesn't mean I'm garbage and it doesn't mean I'm worthless and it doesn't mean that I don't have a role to play it just means like uh, the a better metaphor for me to use is to say like I am a person in recovery and there's there's dignity and honor and journey in that life but I I always am and I always will be and like for me to walk into an anti-racism training like I gotta recognize that it is somewhat and I'm not this isn't a perfect analogy, but I have to recognize that for me, it's somewhat like being an alcoholic who goes to a bar at 2 a.m., right? An alcoholic has no reason to be at a bar at 2 a.m. I have lots of reasons to be at an anti-racism test training, so I'm not saying I don't need it. It's not what I'm saying, but I'm just saying like for me, the temptation to be like, oh, this isn't for me. I don't need this. I'm not one of the people who needs to be there. That's always going to be a really real prideful temptation that I'm going to have to really um, just watch out for and guard against and that and that's a different like obviously you and I are super different in that way because I am white and you are black yeah yeah because if if it had been surviving navigating racism that's a that's a different that's a different ball game right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so anyway I I that that's what I'm just sort of astonished with my whole process with this and looking for how the Lord is in it and um, well, I've been trying to help you for 10 years. So. <laughs> I, know, I know, I know, I know. And if being your friend could deliver me from, you know, but I just, it's just more complicated than you sure. would like to believe that it is. Sure, so. absolutely. Um, so you want to know what I'm thinking about? Absolutely. Okay, because I'm just going to step back into my judgment seat and just recognize how ridiculous it is. So I am thinking about, I mean, I suppose it's your turn to say what you're thinking about. It's all good. This is a judgment-free zone. <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> and the Lord doesn't say we shouldn't have judgment. It says we should not judge others. Thank you. Judgment and discernment are, are part of. I'm so with that. Yes. So um, my, I'm thinking about and discerning. Um, have you heard what's been going on with the, with the Babylon Bee? No. 
Okay, so the Babylon Bee is a satire website that was started by evangelical Christians, um, primarily white male evangelical Christians. And when it, I don't know how long it's been around, but when I first came into awareness of it, it was primarily taking on like white evangelical megachurch culture. Um, in And like, it just had some critiques that were just really like just like, funny. like worship culture kind of yeah i mean you can google it like yeah. i i don't i can't even think of but i mean a lot of it was just like really um like it it was like punching at itself like punching it. its own self in the mm -hmm. jaw like really pointing out kind of the ways that um popular christian culture can be really just flawed um in a way that i i thought was kind of helpful mm -hmm. um and and then I kind of, it's kind of fallen off my radar screen. So I haven't, I don't know, like I never followed it. It just would sometimes people would share things and it would come up or whatever. Um, and so, but this past week, the Babylon Bee was banned from Twitter for a violation of their hate speech um, codes. And I, I did, and so basically they made a joke um, and they, I'm trying to get it so I get it right. So um, Twitter suspends Babylon B for naming Rachel Levine Man of the Year. And so I hope that I'm saying her name right. But Rachel Levine is, I think, the current um, serving doctor, Rachel Levine. I think she's the current, um, she's the current Secretary of Health. And she's the first transgendered woman to be appointed to a cabinet position. Um, and so they named her Man of the Year, which is obviously just a really like mean mm -hmm. hateful derogatory thing to say to a person who identifies as a transgendered woman and then because they were banned from twitter for 24 hours and they were banned for 24 hours and told to remove the joke and um and then they sort of came back and said, like, well, we're not going to bow to Twitter's censorship of our jokes, and this is a free speech issue, and blah, blah, blah. And so, and, you know, it's just interesting, like, looking at it now, I'm like, oh, this is, um, like, at, at least at this stage, like, the folks behind this are actually really clearly identifying with, they're really clearly identifying as anti-liberal. Like, if you look at their website it just talks about like we like i was looking at a video the other day that they're saying like we can't do parody anymore because everything we try to parody the democrats have already done including president biden is giving out crack pipes to users and calling it um like racial justice i mean like just all kinds of just exaggerated like it's just very i mean and obviously that's not neutral that's saying like the liberals are the problem and we can't even anyway and i so putting all of that aside, like what I'm just thinking about is like, what is the role of satire or is there a role in satire for satire in Christian discourse? Right. Because I, on the one hand, when I ran across them and they were sort of poking fun at sort of themselves, right? Like we are a Christian satire organization and we are satiring and lifting up kind of the hypocrisy in our own institutions. I was like, you know, that's actually, that feels, I mean, whatever, it feels fair to me. It feels like another way to kind of like entry point to get people to kind of consider like, oh, is there some something to see here? But now that it's a Christian satire 
site that is poking fun, I mean, to be the most generous thing, poking fun at people who are, I mean, I don't know anything about Dr. Rachel Levine's faith. So maybe she is a practicing Christian. I don't know, but, but they're not, she's not representing a Christian community. She's representing like this secular, godless, liberal institution that they're attacking. And I'm like, well, even if you think that human sexuality and gender norms are being um, twisted by the culture. And I mean, and I think that the Babylon Bee and I would see differences in how that's happening, but I do think that the secular culture twists gender norms and human sexuality in ways that are really unhelpful to human flourishing. I wanna say again, I think that the Babylon Bee and I would identify different places <laughs> that that's happening. Um, I don't think that they would see me as an ally in their um, Christian agenda, but I do think it's true that the culture has sends lots of messages about personhood and gender and sexuality that are really unhelpful for people. But I don't think that satiring, satirizing people or sort of, I don't know, like to tell a trans, tell a transgendered woman man of the year is just a really hate-filled comment. And you can say that it's a joke, but to a person who has experienced so much trauma and continues to experience so much threat and hatred, like it's just not, you know, I mean, is it a joke to burn a cross on somebody's lawn? Like it's not a joke. And so I think like it's just interesting to me that a site that really, I think, sincerely understands itself as a Christian ministry and would also understand that it would be okay to mock the human dignity of a person, a person who you clearly believe is not a believer, right? Like from your perspective, you clearly believe that this person is outside of the will of God. So like to mock someone who in your eyes is a sinner or lost in sin, like how is that going to bring life and healing? And, and, and like, who did Jesus mock? I mean, and you could sort of make an argument maybe that Jesus sort of playfully called out the Pharisees, which to me is more in line with the Babylon Bee as I used to know it when it was sort of pointing back at its own community. <laughs> but now that you're clearly pointing at people on the outside and being like, how ridiculous is that? Is that person? Like that just feels like such, it's just so, um, it's bad. <laughs> um, yeah. I think we've gotten to the place where the church has adopted the cultures, the society's um, thinking that in order to disagree, you have to dehumanize, mm -hmm. and that we can't disagree without dehumanizing the other. And once you hold a position that's different than what I believe is truth, then we're not having a debate we're not having a discussion. I've got to dehumanize you so that others see you from my dehumanizing point of view so that they will agree with me and not with you. And I, I think that, that that's what that seems like that is Well, to I mean, me. the point of that was to make the people who were reading it laugh at Dr. Rachel, Rachel Levine, right? Like the point is to make people laugh at her and scorn her and mock her. And so, you know, even if, even if you think you're right, even if you are right to, to cause, to, 
to cause the body of Christ to scorn someone just as is anathema. I mean, and like, this is like, honestly, there's just, and this is my problem too. So I'm not like, I recognize just sort of the complexity of even moving on from where the last conversation to this conversation, but just to say like, I get it. Like you can be right about something, but if you don't have love, then you are a clanging gong, gong. like you, you're just, and, and so I think the reality is like, I happen to, I don't think that the Babylon Bee is, is right from what I presume their position on transgendered people are from that. I don't, I don't agree with them, but, but even if they are right, their posture towards someone, I just, there's, there's no, there's no gospel in that. And I say that as someone who quite recently has had to look at her own actions and go like, there was very little gospel in my posture in the way that I entered into a space. And I think that's the thing we just keep coming back to. Like sometimes if we think like the way that the enemy tempts us is to convince us that we're right. <laughs> and then to say like, whatever, whatever actions or postures you take when you're right becomes righteous. And that's just not true. Um, so anyway, I would. Yeah, and I'm very mindful of that group called the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, mm -hmm. right? And so what's clear about them is that they watch the church. Mm -hmm. They watch the church, those who consider themselves on the left of issues and those who consider themselves on the right of issues. And I, I think they watch the church and have concluded, I don't want any part of that conversation mm -hmm. because it is. It is dehumanizing. It's often hate-filled. The um, satire isn't funny. Um, so yeah, I, I think where I land in all that is I'm just really mindful of that group because I know what it's like to be in that group where you're outside the church looking in. And I think like when you're inside the church, it just feels very apparent to us that like well there's us and then there's jesus and like we don't we know in humility like yeah we get it wrong a lot of the time but to people outside of the church they're like oh no i don't want to be a part of your like your god terrifies me or your god is vicious or your god is mean and so to recognize like i mean that's a problem like even sometimes we proudly say like yes i represent jesus but sometimes even when we'd like to say like no i'm not jesus don't look at me like to people who are outside of the church like they do and so the way that you, the way that we talk about what we believe, like, is also what we believe. It matters. Right. And so, and I guess, like, I think our friend Lisa Coons was saying, like, she does a lot with the 24-7 prayer movement to talk about, like, it, we're not trying to be a movement that centers, how did she say it? Like, um, centers doctrine or belief, but centers values, right? And so to say, like, Whatever your belief is about hum human sexuality and gender, like the way that you express those beliefs expresses your values. And so the values yeah. of that article, that parody article, is to otherize and mock and scorn someone who you think is wrong and I mean and it is punching down like you're you know you're a satire I mean I don't know so I I think um it's just so, troubling well, let, let's be clear so there are many in that group who see themselves as an oppressed minority mm -hmm. we Christians are being oppressed by 
a left-leaning society. And yet, for the most part, if there were Christians, th those who identify as Christians in the January 6th insurrection, they are in that group. But they're, they're, they're willing to um, bear their arms, um, commit violent acts, and at the same time say, well, we are um, a persecuted group, therefore satire is in order. Yeah, and it was really interesting. Like when I was doing just looking some more yesterday and I was watching some videos and that one that I was mentioning, it's like it, it was three white men sitting around like pretending to be at a writer's meeting for the Babylon Bee. And the premise was like, we can't do parody anymore because it's all true because the, and I think specifically because it's the Democrats are making it all true. So we can't parody them. And like one of the things they were saying, like three white men were saying like, maybe it could be Black Lives Matter gets a Nobel Peace Prize nomination. They're like, nope, that happened. I mean, I just think like the, the idea of three white men sitting around in a room um, sort of scorning this whole movement of people of color, the name of which is Black Lives Matter. I mean, like there's just a real, I mean, I think that this is the, the problem and is that we see something that's wrong and we don't get curious. We think I see something that's wrong so that people are wrong instead of saying like, well, this, this doesn't jive with my understanding of how life should be working. But, but the people who disagree with me are just as human as I am. So maybe I want to like take a posture of honor and curiosity first, because I mean, there's definitely times when we need to say this is wrong and we can't, we, you know, it's there's no moral equivalency to it, but that doesn't mean that we need to say that the people who have fallen under the influence of it are anti-human or dehumanized or whatever. And I, you know, I just think that that, but just that optic well, of three yes, men sitting around here's, saying, "Here's my experience." My experience is that um, many people who hear me preach. conclude that I'm a pretty conservative guy. Mm -hmm. People who hear me talk about politics conclude I'm a pretty liberal guy. So I have friends, colleagues, who if we're talking about evangelism, if we're talking about um, charismatic um, life, in the spirit, if we're talking about um, substitutionary atonement theology, <laughs> which I know you love, right? They are with me. Right. But what I've noticed over the years, they then make an assumption. Yeah. If you, if your theology is this, then your politics must also be of a of a certain conservative bent. And often I find. Those folks, um, my friends, colleagues, are very surprised um, when I do open up and share. No, this this is what I believe about this area of politics, and that helps me in terms of not dehumanizing mm -hmm. those folks because I I can find a place of agreement. I can find a place of oh, we can have a conversation about this, but then I know when the conversation moves to another area. I'm going to have to finesse that because I know a deeper conversation 
needs to happen because we're just not in the same place. Yeah, I do just think it is so. The culture wars are so seductive. They're so seductive, and they're and so people are seductive. much more con- complex, right? The culture right. war says you're either on the left or on the right. That's pretty much it. Yeah, you're but either we are complex, right? And you're either part of the problem or part of the solution, yes. and that's it. You either have value yes. or you are, at, you know, taking you value. You are the enemy. And the reality is, the gospel. One of the reasons that the cross is a stumbling block is that Jesus is up there on the cross, forgiving and praying for the people who have put him on the cross, and you know, praying for the people who have put the people on either side of him on the cross, right? Yeah. So it's just to be able to say, like, if you follow Jesus, like in my opinion, real Jesus, then you, 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 I don't know, you have to be able to clearly take a stand for the marginalized, but without mocking or dehumanizing the victimizers. Jesus will take us out of our dualistic Mm -hmm. right or wrong thinking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, and this is, you know, I think why the peacemakers are called children of God, because you know, the culture war wagers will just want, we just want our side to win. And the peacemakers are saying, I want more than our side to win. I want the other side, in quotes, to experience the fullness of life and redemption that I am enjoying. And the, and the challenge is how the kingdom advances, which is how the kingdom advances. But the challenge is people who are, who are on quote, your side will often see that as a betrayal. Like if you see the humanity of your enemies, then you're not my ally. That's good. Um, Mm -hmm. And that, you know, and I get it. Like I really get it, which is one of the places I think is the difference between a pastor and an activist. And I think both are God called and God flourished. But I think like an activist is called into the world, like a prophet to say clearly, like this is right. And this is wrong. And there's a lot of places where we walk in solidarity with that. But but the difference is to say, even those who are supporting and perpetuating the wrong are created in the image of God, are worthy and of redemption, and God is in the process of redeeming them. And I want to be a, a part. I want to even lay down my life so that. Yes, that can there happen. are some younger slash middle aged evangelical preachers who over the past few years have said not anything radical but something like hey the church needs to look at its racism Mm -hmm. hey racism is an issue in america and they have been vilified Mm -hmm. right i mean just Mm -hmm. rejected Mm -hmm. like oh now so and so is a false teacher now Mm -hmm. they are a false prophet I mean, that's what the culture war does. Well, and it's funny because Beth Moore just had a really great tweet this week saying like, you know, we could have just repented, right? Yeah. Like <laughs> the evangelical church could have heard yeah. people saying, hey, there's racism here. And one option is we could have repented mm-hmm. and and we didn't do that. We said, no, there's not. You're a false teacher. You're not, you know, and just to say like, oh my goodness, we have this tool to realign ourselves with God to be, you know, and we just say that's fine for other people, but not for us. I mean, and this is the issue with like the Babylon Bee, like, well, what are you really about? Because if, if you really believe that Dr. Rachel Levine is lost in sin, then how is mocking her going to rescue her? Right? Like how, how, so that's just not love. And, and, and you're, you are encouraging other folks to go find the people in the world that they think are pathetic. And, like mock them as well. And that's just, I mean, like Jesus really, he didn't mock anyone. 
I can't think of a moment in any of the gospels that you could put under that category. And um, I think, you know, there's something about telling the truth, which is so life giving, even, even when it doesn't have any power beyond saying it out loud, but there's just a line between truth telling and mocking that we need to be really aware of. Um, so, yeah, I remember when I, I think I've told the story before, since seminary, I think the, my second year, the summer, my friend Jeannie and I were going to worship at uh, one of the Presbyterian churches just outside of the city. Uh, we drove there on a Sunday morning. Um, we, we arrived just as worship was beginning. We found a seat, experienced worship there, and um, we were on our way to the car, probably about still a good six or seven feet away from the car, and someone from the front door of the church yelled, black devils, stay where you belong. And um, we, I looked at her, she looked at me, we didn't turn around, we got in the car and drove off. And to this church's credit, someone heard this person reported it to the elders, mm -hmm. and the elders came to campus and found us. Uh, they went to, I think, the dean of students or the president and said, okay, this happened. We don't know the names of the students, but they look, they must have said they right. look like. And so um, they found us the following week and had a conversation with us. I remember we sat at, um, at a table in one of the classrooms, and they apologized, and I mean, it, it was real. It, in the moment, um, you know, I was twenty. Wow. Early twenties. I was so stunned. Yeah. Um, that I, I really couldn't take it all in. But in retrospect, I could see how beautiful and God honoring it. What they could have just let it go and say, "Oh, mm -hmm. we shouldn't have done that. That was bad. That was wrong." Uh, but to come and find us was healing, and it allowed me to now think about this church in light of their response right. and not right. the this, act. this one person who right. committed that act. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, and I think that's, you know, the bottom line. And I'm reading right now Executing Grace by Shane Claiborne, which is really good. And, like, one of the things that he's talking about is, you know, evil is real in the world. And um, that that's not that's not up for debate. Um, and evil has real destructive power. And it's not that people who love God and are loved by God are going to always not feel the force of that power. But what what we have is a power to respond so that love and grace become part of the story. Um, and and then sometimes we're weak enough that we can't that. And so that that's real, but I, I think that that's um, what we need to recognize is that part, like step one is saying like, this is evil. And step two is saying for us, you know, we respond with grace and love and mercy so that that evil, it doesn't become the last word. Yes. And I, I, I just think that that's so much the point the Apostle Paul was trying to make when he so often told his story and talked about his right. life. Like, if God could rescue me 
and he called himself the chief among sinners. Mm-hmm. If God could rescue me, then we ought to see everyone as redeemable and rescuable. Right. And, and and also, like, not just, like, begrudgingly, like, okay, we'll let, but, like, to say, no, like, look at what the redeemed Saul offered to the body of Christ. So, yes. like, to say people really are more than their wounds and more than their brokenness and more than their sins. And we are less than the grace of God that's manifest in us. And so, to I mean, because I one of the things that I like that Pete Scazzaro talks about a lot in his emotionally healthy discipleship stuff, which I think that a lot of biblical scholars would have a problem with this, but he talks about a lot about tracing the way that Paul talks about himself over the course of his letters and to say, like, you know, when he's first writing, he's saying, like, I'm the chief of all apostles. And then he moves on to say, like, I'm the least of all apostles. And then towards the end, when he's writing to Timothy, he says, I'm the worst of sinners, right? And so, like, as he matures in his understanding of who the Lord is and who he is in the Lord, he no longer feels this need to like defend himself and to say, I matter to, you know, like he, he, he gets to be able to say it, it is, I glorify God when I tell the truth about the breadth of my, of the way that I have been destructive in the world. I was talking to a Methodist pastor a couple of weeks ago and he was telling me, that at the end of a recent worship service, he gave an invitation to discipleship, an invitation to join the church, as he does every Sunday. And someone actually joined the church, and it was wonderful and beautiful. And he said later that week, a member of the church that he's known for years and years and years, who's been a part of this worshiping community for a long time, said to him, now I feel like I can join the church because I didn't, I've never seen anyone do it. And I didn't, I thought that invitation was just a formality. Mm-hmm. It's just part of the service. I didn't know it was a real thing. Mm-hmm. And I think about, you know, things like, you know, many of our churches do a confession of sin. Mm-hmm. I wonder if we just think of it as a formality. Right. And not like, oh, we are really confessing our sin. We right. We really are sinners this isn't just a thing we do because it's it's part of the order of service or because we're part it's of this not denomination just an empty ritual. it is not an empty ritual we really are sinners and if and if i take an honest look at my sin and the grace that has been given me how can i not also see that same grace being made available to those who the culture war would call my enemy mhm mhm yeah. Well, what are you thinking about, friend? What am I thinking about? I am thinking about, uh, well, you know, we are in the process of searching for a new musician slash worship leader. Yes. And so every week we're having different people come, and it's wonderful and beautiful. It's great to have a variety of musicians. And a couple of weeks ago we had this uh, one man, uh, 60-ish, and he came into the worship center with a little bit of a lamp, and I didn't think much of it. Um, but as he um, kind of doodled, I know that's not a technical musical <laughs> music word, but, you know, he just kind of played there before worship started. And I just got the impression from the spirit that um, I was supposed to ask him to sing a special song. And I don't really like putting people on the spot. And so I went to him and I I said, you know, do, do you sing? He said, yeah, I sing. I, said, I, I just feel like the Lord wants you to sing a song just before the sermon 
if if so, please do it, and um, that, that would be great. Just let the Holy Spirit lead you. And he said, very well. And he played and sang the song that was beautiful. It was about God's grace. And by the end, I was crying. My wife was crying. Several people in the congregation were crying. And and the the, the one of the beautiful things about this this song was that he played a lot of notes wrong. Mm-hmm. He sang. He got. He got some of the words mm-hmm. wrong. Um, it was not. It was not perfect. It was not, not polished, polished mm-hmm. right? And after worship, and 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 it it was a wonderful worship experience. After worship, he was on his way out, and he said, "Preacher, I want you to know something." He said, "A couple of years ago, I had four strokes." I wasn't sure I'd able be able to do anything much ever again. I'm just happy to be here to play music and to worship with you. I was blown away by that. And I've been thinking about that for a couple of weeks, and several things come to mind. Number one, it, it reminds me, and I've been, I've been chewing on this both for myself as a preacher and just for the congregation, it reminds me that none of our efforts sincerely offered to the Lord in faith are wasted. Correct. Just not wasted. Mm-hmm. Two, it reminds me, it's a beautiful illustration that when we offer ourselves to God, our weaknesses, our imperfections, our mistakes are somehow wrapped up in the grace of God and are God-honoring, and also help to build up the body. I mean, his playing was from a musical point. I mean, you could hear wrong notes, right? but it encouraged mm-hmm. the people. Um, the other thing that I've been thinking about in, in, in response to this musician, it's just, he just had the sheer joy of being at the piano. He said, I've been playing mm-hmm. in churches since I was 12 years old. Hmm. And I came to a place when I had those strokes. He said, I was in the hospital for weeks and weeks and weeks and mm-hmm. then in rehab. He said, I didn't think I'd be able to play again, much less walk. Mm-hmm. And, and now there's just the sheer joy of playing music. Yep. And... You know, I can't help but think about what what I do as a pastor, as mm-hmm. a preacher. Sometimes you think, okay, oh, Sunday comes every three days. I have to write another sermon, or I have to do this task, or go to that meeting. But in reality, if it were taken away, it would not take me long at all to miss it. I would hunger, and I would I would want it, and it it has brought me back to really appreciating what a what a gift it is to be able to do this yeah. work yeah yeah I, I think it is so important and we we actually talk about this a lot at worship leadership at the grove and in general that like i don't care if it's i love the excellent. way you put this <laughs> i don't care if it's excellent it doesn't matter if it's excellent if it doesn't become a catalyst for nourishing and healing and yeah. change and growth in the 
in the congregation. And w- was just talking with our music leaders last week to say like for us, the Grove, if there's a lot of stuff that I'm like, I don't, I don't really know what I think. Like you, you're the expert. It doesn't, it's Adi Afran. There's a million different good ways to do it. But the thing that I have real clarity around in worship is what the mark of not success, but faithfulness Yes. The measure of faithfulness in worship leading for us is, is the congregation participating? Mm. So it's not how, and and this is for everything. It's easiest to see in the music, but it's for everything, including the sermon. Like it's not how do the people on the platform sound? Because they can sound excellent, but if the people who have come to worship Like they are worship leaders. And so their job is to lead people into worship, both in that space and in that moment, and also to model for people, this is the how and the why and the what of worship. And to plant seeds and truths in people's hearts that leave the sanctuary space with them and go out into the world with them. And so, you know, for me, when we have, I mean, all worship is beautiful, right? And also we're supposed to have judgment and discerning. And so we're looking for like ways we can grow in faithfulness. And to me, like when worship is excellent, it's when I can hear the congregation singing the music. I can see people wrestling and praying along and participating. And it's important that like it is one of the other things that's really clear to me is look, anybody who will come to practice, anyone who will prepare can lead worship because everyone can worship. Yeah. So if you're saying like, well, only a certain standard of musical giftedness can lead worship, then what does that mean for the person who doesn't have that musical giftedness in the pews? Can they then not means worship? You have reduced worship to performance. Right. And so I'm just saying like, there are moments in worship where we have not many of them where we have a presented like usually in the offering spot if someone wants to like just do something that glorifies god and shows just the virtuosity and magnificent like that's glorious but everything else is group work right and so if it's a song that the congregation can't sing then it doesn't belong in worship right because we're doing this together um and i i just think that that's a really like that's just a point of real clarity for me and then beyond that there's just a million beautiful good ways you can do it and i guess the point is that that standard of faithfulness means every note doesn't need to be right. And it means that the broken places, the, the glory and the light of God can shine even brighter and more fully out of the broken places than out of the perfect and polished places. And we have to have eyes to see that and think like, what are we really going after? And I think that's a thing that like a lot of churches just have it wrong because we so much, I think, have kind of the gaze of an outsider in mind that we think like, well, what can we do in this place that would impress an outsider and make them think like, oh, these people have really got something going on. But I mean, that's not, that's, that's yes. not it. Like we're meant to magnify the Lord and the Lord is the Lord of the weekend, weak and the broken and the rejected and the dejected and the marginalized. Now that doesn't mean you just come up and throw any old slop on the floor and say it's good enough Correct. for Jesus. Like it is still our highest, but it does mean like you can swing and miss. And it does mean that there's no shame in being a beginner. And there's, there's glory in like going after for something, whether you, quote achieve it or miss and like that's what gives me a lot of 
energy and peace in the pulpit is there are days when I'm just like, but I'm also like, I got to go for it because I just really think that this is what the Lord has for us. And this is what people need to hear. And like, I really think there's a high probability that I am just going to biff it and look like an idiot and a (laughs) fool. And that's okay. Like I would rather look like a fool. Okay. And have people really see Jesus than look slick and have... And no life. Right. Or just have people be like, oh, great. Like, that's an admirable... Or whatever. Like, who cares? I shared with the congregation a couple weeks ago, um, because February was the 24th anniversary of my ordination, and I was sharing with the congregation that... um, when I first started to share with my friends that I felt a call to ministry, many of my friends laughed <laughs> and they said, you don't even really know how to talk. <laughs> you don't have the gift of gab that preachers mm-hmm. have. And, you know, I, for a long time, felt a way about that and sometimes even today. Um, but again, it's that idea that God chooses the weak things of the world. And so, yeah, offer up our weaknesses because by God's grace, that's used. And because when our weaknesses are used, God is glorified. And when our strengths are used, we are also glorified. And that's, I think, the thing. Like, so, of course, we want to lead with the beautiful parts and the pretty parts and the admirable parts. and And, like, that's good. I'm not saying that God's not in that. But when... There's just a danger there. There's a pride there's a, danger. Yes. And also when we, there's a danger also that people will be like, well, that's fine for them, but not for me. Yes. Because I know who I am on the inside. And so I know that there's no way something good could come out of me. But when we show not to excuse, but when we show like, no, I really have deep places of brokenness and um, unloveliness and, 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 that's not the only true thing about me, then people who really feel like there's nothing of value in them can, can go, well, maybe, maybe there's something else too. Maybe I'm more than the worst things I've done. And that's the gospel, you know, and, but I think when we don't ever show our junk, then, or when we stand up in front of people and say, well, it's not junk when I do it, then we just reinforce that paradigm that God is for the elite um, which is sort of the whole thing that Jesus came to destroy. So I think we need to stop talking now, as always, unless you want to tell people what you're preaching on this week. You already told us, but did tell I? us again. Yes. I am preaching. Oh, I guess I did. Um, I'm preaching uh, about how to hear, how to hear God's voice. God. And I think I'm going to use that story about uh, the young Samuel in the temple, mm-hmm. and he and God is calling him, and he thinks it's Eli. Yeah, it goes to Eli, right? the authority. And so here's what's well, here's what gets my attention in that text. First of all, it's not surprising to me that Samuel is in the temple where the glory dwells. And so there's that scripture that says, "Draw near to me, and I will draw near to you." And when we gather at our prayer summit, we're going to begin not with prayer but with worship. We're, we're going we're gonna to sing and worship and adore God. We're going to draw near in order to hear. Uh, uh, the second thing uh, that gets my attention in that text is that Samuel needs help. He needs mm-hmm. other people. He needs Eli to say, mm-hmm. oh, that's the voice of the Lord calling you. And mm-hmm. so we need one another for discernment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And Eli has the holy humility to be able to say, God is speaking to you, Samuel, not to me. Yes. And, and to what if, whatever it. he says, whatever God says, that that's the whether I like it or not, that is what's true. Yes. And one who really loves the I'm Lord isn't the threatened sermon. by that, right? Like Eli's not threatened by that at all. Oh, like his faith so in good. God. And you know, and I just that's yeah, good. That's, yeah. that's because yeah. Eli and you know, he he has some real brokenness in him as well, but you can see that Eli's life is really centered on God and not on himself, which is why like it takes him a minute. It takes him a minute, mm-hmm. but he he gets it and he then hears what God says to Samuel, and it doesn't, you know, it just would have been so easy to be defensive and to reject that. So, I mean, Eli is just so beautiful in that text, yeah. in this brokenness. So what are you preaching? Well, I'm preaching on breaking the power of the past. Wow. <laughs> Which is another one of those marks of healthy discipleship from Pete Scazzaro. And I had planned back in January to preach on the pool of Bethsaida, Um and I, and I, but I just, I'm not sure that that's still where the Lord, I mean, maybe, maybe it is, but I'm not totally sure that that's still where the Lord is leading me. But back in January, I was thinking like, well, the, the man was seeking healing at the pool of Bethsaida because that's where the tradition had told him that healing would come and this was, ritual was the way to do it, but it wasn't working and he wasn't getting healing from there. And then the Lord came to him and you know, was the vehicle in the presence of healing in his life, but he had to leave, you know, he had to leave the pool, pick up his mat and go. One of the things that I love about that particular story is the question that Jesus asked him. Do Do you you want want to to get well? And it's not like Jesus was like, like Jesus didn't know. It was, it seems to me that Jesus was trying to get him to be honest about what he really wanted. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we'll have like, you know, faith for, you know, Pastor Kate and, you know, this person, that person, but to say aloud what I want from God, what I'm expecting, what I'm seeking, that, w- w- at least I find in the mainline church, we're often shy about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting because part of when you hear that text, like, I also hear all the harmful things that have been done through mm-hmm. that text, right? So I think that you know, people have just done it to turn the gospel into a gospel of personal responsibility in ways that are really, really unhelpful. Um, and still, I think that um, we have power. Oh, uh, the take up your mat and walk. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And I think also to say, like, look, there are ways that that text has been used to cause even greater harm and oppression to mar- marginalized people to yes. say, like, don't have a victim mentality or whatever. And that's really not appropriate at all. But I also think that even in the context of reality, <laughs> like being a person who has to live in reality where evil has still power and where injustice sometimes reigns masked as justice even in the context of that, to say, I won't escape the impact of that, but I don't have to be formed by it. Like there is a spiritual freedom that exists for me, even not by denying this as a reality, but in the context of that. So just, just like playing around with that. No, you got Um, a word. That's good. So, so yes. So anyway, but I, I also have a lot more reading and studying to do. So I'm, I'm wary sometimes of where, when I have a word before I really, you should write that down because (laughs) you know, 
what we do. Yes, we're we like, talk oh, yeah, about yeah, something yeah. on it's Tuesday. A great idea. Yeah, I got this. I and then on Friday, it's like, now what did we say on Tuesday? Like we'll call each other on Friday and be like, what did I like? You said that was good. What was it? And you're like, Psh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm like, did you write that down? He's like, why would I, I write, write down, down. your? <laughs> that happens all the time. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening, and um, we get a lot of joy out of um, doing this together. So thanks for listening. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at Derrida Presbyterian Church, D-E-R-I-T-A Pres, P-R-E-S dot org, you can go to their website. You can find out about worship and the prayer summit and all the things. You can listen to Yolando's messages at the Derrida Church podcast, which is on the Podbean website. And you can go to their YouTube channel, Derrida Prez YouTube channel. You can watch worship and see recent messages. And you could actually go and worship with them in person if you are in Charlotte or if you feel like coming to Charlotte. Um, they worship at 1030s on Sunday mornings. And if you want to know more about what God is doing at The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out um, messages from The Grove, which is at... Um, the Grove Church Podcast, which is on all the places, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, wherever, wherever. you can go to our YouTube channel and check out videos, um, the Grove Charlotte dot, no, the Grove Charlotte YouTube channel, and you can worship with us at 10 o'clock on Sundays, um, and we are super grateful to um, be here, and we will talk to you next week. 